Netflix is making its biggest move yet into live sports. Plus, MLS referees are threatening to strike. The NFL broke another viewership record, and later we're looking into the present and future of college athletics with ESPN's Jay Billis. It's Wednesday, January 24th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Netflix has struck a 10-year deal with WWE for its weekly flagship show, Raw, for over $5 billion. Joining me now to discuss is Front Office Sports newsletter co-author Eric Fisher. Welcome, Eric. Hello. So uh, what does this deal mean for Netflix as it sort of creeps into becoming more of a sports streamer? Well, they're not creeping anymore. They're there and they're they're there in a big way. This is a global deal that really... Uh, takes Netflix's presence as a sports entity and takes it to an entirely different level. They had kind of been dabbling around the edges and sort of a made-for-TV golf event, made-for-TV tennis event involving some people involved in some of their documentary properties. Um, This is a whole other thing. This is a flagship established property, and they now have the rights for a decade, and they're taking it all over the globe. So Netflix, as you alluded to, they've kind of sniffed around various other sports properties. They looked at Formula One, where obviously they've had a lot of success with Drive to Survive. They looked at, the, I think, the World Surf League, a couple others. Why do you think WWE was where they found a, a match? This is the most seamless transition for them, and this was the, basically the primary thread in the newsletter story that we wrote at Front Office Sports today. If you look at what WWE is as a sports property, it is the thing out there that most resembles everything else that Netflix has in their content library. Raw is scripted, episodic, based on characters and storytelling. This sounds like Stranger Things or anything else that you would (laughs) find on Netflix. And so it's a very easy transition, particularly compared to a live stick and ball thing where you're dealing with labor issues, vagaries of a schedule. Uh, Another big point is that Raw is 52 weeks a year. And so, again, you've got a weekly iterative piece of character-driven scripted content. Again, this is tailor-made for Netflix. Yeah. And thinking about this, you know, um, you know, they're, they're all about, you know, these, these like box to box, the, the production company, um, um, these docu-series that they do. Something like Raw feels like it could feed in naturally to shoulder programming. Of course, the Raw scripted itself, but uh, it feels like there could be, you know, behind the scenes or something like that. They're already talking about that, and that is not explicitly part of the deal, at least as it relates to an SEC filing disclosure kind of thing at this initial outset. But they're absolutely talking about that because that, again, just leans into the natural strengths of both organizations that you've got Netflix with its existing base and expertise and developing and distributing documentary programming, WWE's natural strength and storytelling. It's a natural thing that they would come together and put something together. And it may take six months, year, two years, whatever, uh, but it's almost certainly going to happen. So thinking about the sports moves Netflix has made beyond the docu-series, we've got the Netflix Slam, which is their their uh, tennis tournament coming with uh, with have Nadal and Alcaraz, among others. So that 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 feels pretty big. They had their kind of goofy, uh, you know, F1 uh, drivers and golfers in a golf tournament, uh, the Netflix Cup that was. And so everything, including Raw, 
has a certain degree of control that you don't get with, you know, like the NBA or, you know, any other, you know, uh, other sports. And that was my point before. Yeah, exactly. So do, do we feel like Netflix is, is a sports streamer now, or do they still have to make that move into sports properties that they don't really have um, this level of control over before we think of them, you know, in the same breath as say Amazon. Depends on how you feel about the WWE uh, that, uh, you know, a lot of folks sort of think about it and follow it like they would the NBA or NFL or anybody else, even though the WWE is scripted. Um, some other folks think of it very much as a wholly different thing than those other leagues. And so, you know, beauty's kind of in the eye of the beholder there to sort of, you know, to sort of kind of weasel out a little bit on your question here. It really kind of comes down to how you categorize WWE. I, the way I sort of think about it, I split the baby a little bit that competitively speaking, yes, it is different, but as it relates to, you know, a content development thing or a financial thing, um, they're trading in all the same spaces as any of these other leagues, which is why we're talking about it now as we speak. Um, that they're sort of going after a lot of the same fans and the same sponsors and same content subscribers as any of those other leagues. And so, yes, the way I sort of think about it is that they're very much part of this space again. Otherwise we wouldn't even be talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. And anything else that you're just kind of keeping your eye on as, as you know, Netflix continues its move into the sports world. The next big thing, particularly as it relates to the WWE's rights, are the current U.S. rights for the WWE Network and uh, WrestleMania and the other premium live events that are on Peacock now. That deal, which you know was a handful of years ago and was groundbreaking in and of itself at the time, we're now just a couple of years away from expiration on that, that that's coming up uh, in March of 26. And if this Netflix thing for Raw and the international rights for all of those other premium live events, if that goes well, it would stand to reason that they're going to be a major player to take on these American rights that Peacock now has. And then really being the central home for all things wrestling um, around the world. Uh, so that's the next big shoe to drop that I'm, I'm curious to see if it actually does happen that way. All right, Eric Fisher, body slamming the news as always. Thanks so much for <laughs> joining us on the show. Always a pleasure. The Major League Soccer season starts on February 21st with a match between Lionel Messi's Inter-Miami and Real Salt Lake. It's the start of Messi's first full season in MLS and also the beginning of a three-year run in which the U.S. will host CONCACAF matches this year, the Club World Cup in 2025, the Men's World Cup in 2026, and possibly the Women's World Cup in 2027. So this year is all about building on the surge of excitement from Messi's arrival as we move into this three-year stretch. But now, with less than a month before the season, there is turmoil in MLS, and it's coming from the league's referees. The Professional Soccer Referees Association, which represents referees in the U.S. and Canada, voted unanimously to authorize a potential strike as it negotiates a new collective bargaining agreement with the professional referees organization. The union has also filed an unfair labor practice complaint with the National Labor Relations Board, claiming that the PRO was negotiating directly with union members instead of the union itself. The referees want better pay and benefits, as well as quality of life improvements around travel and other factors. On Monday, the union tweeted out a picture of the thermostat in the referee's locker room at a preseason game, which showed that the temperature in the room was 42 degrees. With a massively important season for MLS a few weeks away, the referee's negotiating power has never been higher. 
Sunday's tilt between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Buffalo Bills, their third playoff meeting in the last four years, drew an average viewership of 50.4 million with a peak of 56.3 million viewers. That's the first time a divisional playoff game has surpassed 50 million. As we've covered here, 93 of the top 100 most watched telecasts last year were NFL games. 16 of those involved the Chiefs and 13 involved the Bills. So we already had two of the top draws in the league. And then you add in Taylor Swift, who was watching the game from the same suite as shirtless Jason Kelsey, and you have a recipe to break some records. But if you're inclined toward conspiracy theories, you might say that the game didn't matter. Whoever won that match was preordained to lose this Sunday to the Baltimore Ravens. Why would anyone think that? Well, every year the NFL produces a logo for the Super Bowl. It's basically the same each year, except they adjust the number and put in a new color scheme. Two years ago, it was mostly red with some yellow, which happened to be the main colors of the two teams that played in the big game that year, the Cincinnati Bengals and the Los Angeles Rams. Last year, same thing. The logo was red and green, the colors of the Chiefs and Philadelphia Eagles. This year, the logo is purple and red, the colors of the Baltimore Ravens and San Francisco 49ers, who are each one win away from meeting in the Super Bowl. It gets weirder. Last Thursday, when the Niners and Ravens were each two wins away from a Super Bowl berth, BNN, which is a Canadian television station owned by Bloomberg, had a box on the screen that was cycling through various news items that briefly said, Reba McIntyre, Usher, and Post Malone are slated to perform at San Francisco 49ers and Baltimore Ravens Super Bowl matchup on February 11th. If the NFL were going to somehow script the season, it probably wouldn't pick these two teams, and there's no particular reason that the script would somehow leak to a news ticker box on a Canadian news station. But this is more fun and harmless than most other conspiracy theories, so I'm hoping it gets spookier over the next few days. Up next, I spoke to Jay Billis, college basketball analyst for ESPN. At a time when the ground under college athletics is liquefying before our eyes, Billis provides clarity on what we're looking at and where it's going, and does a pretty thorough takedown of the NCAA's position on amateurism and the way it's trying to restrict college athletes. It was a lot of fun to talk to, and that conversation is coming up next. All right, very excited to be joined now by ESPN basketball analyst Jay Billis. Welcome, Jay. Thank you, Owen. Good to be with you. Yeah, great to have you on. So these are wild times in for the NCAA, for college athletics generally. Just last week, we saw the Department of Justice join a lawsuit seeking to eliminate NCAA transfer rules. Do you think the current transfer rules have any hope of survival in their current form? Probably not, unless the NCAA can articulate an academic purpose for penalizing an, a, a student for transferring from one school to another and forcing them to sit out a year as they did for, for many years, forcing them to sit out a year to participate in an extracurricular activity. Uh, I think they're going to have a hard time justifying it. If there was some sort of academic reason that if a player were transferring from one to another and didn't main, uh, maintain uh, the track to graduate, you could see where that would, that would be sustainable. But the NCAA studied this and there's no connection between transfers and gradually, you know, reduced graduation rates or things like that. And they've looked. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think, look, I, I think this transfer issue has become an issue largely because the NCAA was so fixated on fighting over the money piece of all this. They realized that the transfer rules were making them look really bad in court. And uh, most people, most fans don't know this, but the, the year in residence transfer restriction, you know, having to sit out a year when you transfer from one school to another, it only existed in five, in five sports, uh, football, you know, men's and women's basketball, uh, I think it was baseball and hockey. Everyone else could transfer and be eligible right away. So the rules never really made any sense. They were never evenly 
uh, they were never evenly applied across the board. And they realized that. And that's why that's why they changed them. Um, but, you know, the old school coaches don't like it. Uh, the younger younger coaches seem to be adjusting to it pretty easily. Uh, but I, I've been fascinated by coaches calling this, you know, the, the things transactional now. It's always been transactional. Um, you know, you offered a scholarship or not, uh, you know, sign on the dotted line, you're going to play. It's always been a transaction. And they talk about relationships as if you can't have relationships now. It's, it's, it's really kind of absurd, the complaining I'm hearing. Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting time because things are changing so quickly. The NCAA seems not quite helpless is a little too strong, but this tide of, you know, athletes just having more and more power, you know, starting with NIL, but, you know, the, the transfer portal obviously leans into that and, um, and yeah, their ability to, to negotiate deals with, with schools, um, you know, it, it's, it's making it more like a professional, you know, professional system. Does amateurism have any hope here, you think? No. Uh, but what I would say is it's always been professional sports. College sports has always been professional. It's funny, since 1984, when the NCAA lost its last case before the, the United, Supreme Court, uh, United States Supreme Court, uh, that was called the Board of Regents case, money exploded in college athletics. So when these multi-billion dollar media deals were negotiated, nobody had a problem with it. When coaches' salaries went way up, nobody had a problem with it. Everybody's flying private now. Games are being played at 9.30 at night on weeknights, and, and teams are traveling across the country to play conference games now. Nobody had a problem with it. But, boy, you, you let the athletes do a, an ad for a local chicken place and start making money, and now all of a sudden the world's coming to an end and dogs and cats are living together. It's really absurd. And these have always been professional athletes. The only difference between college sports and the NBA or the NFL is the players go to school. That's the only difference. Everything else is professional in every way. The way they price their tickets, the way they do their media deals, their coaches deals, you name it. It's all the same. And it's funny how every person in American society can operate just fine in the free market, but not a college athlete. That's the one subset of American society that we cannot allow anything more than a scholarship to or everything comes crumbling down. I don't know any reasonable person that's not affiliated with college sports that believes that. And now the NCAA knows that the United States Supreme Court doesn't believe that either. And so the ruling uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court and the accompanying, it was a 9-0 nine, a loss, which is extraordinary. And then the, the, con yeah, the concurring opinion by Justice Kavanaugh, that basically told the NCAA, it's over. It's over. You're not going to win any more of these antitrust cases. Amateurism is dead, but there's still this, this last gasp of hope that maybe Congress will come in and give the NCAA a serial antitrust violator, give a serial antitrust violator an antitrust exemption to continue to treat athletes different from literally everyone else, including every other student. It, it makes no sense to me. Yeah, and I just feel like... Yeah, I don't quite know, you know, what what where we're going with this because you know the NCAA is is still trying to shape this in some way where it can put limits on it. Of course, Charlie Baker, the NCAA president, came out with his proposal um, that was you know somewhat convoluted, but you know would would retain some grasp around amateurism and maybe put some caps around what what players can earn. 
Uh, do you have some sense of where we're headed, you know, when the dust settles and I'm not sure, two, three, five years? Yes, I feel like I do. But let me first say, in, in articulating sort of, as you just did, what the NCAA may be thinking, doesn't it sound absurd? I mean, you're saying trying to get limits on athletes. You know, the, the NCAA is not going to Congress saying, help us limit coaches' salaries and help us limit what we spend on this enterprise. They're just saying, help us limit the athletes. And they use really cute little terms like guardrails, which is a, a nice word for restrictions. Help us restrict only one class of person in our society and no one else. You know, they're not asking, don't let any student on scholarship earn any money outside of school. Don't let anybody do it. They're just saying, don't let these athletes do it while we're selling them literally for billions of dollars. It makes no sense. Uh, but look, here's where I think this is headed. The NCAA is trying to die, instead of amateurism, now they're trying to die on the hill of employment. Now all of a sudden they can't be employees, even though colleges and universities around the country employ thousands of students, enrolled students in different uh, uh, jobs around their universities. But they wanna say athletes can't do it. That, that makes no sense by itself. All the NCAA has to do is say, look, you are free to sign players to contracts. And these collectives go away. People continue to give money to their universities, which they want to do. They're not most most of the time, unless they donate to an endowment, they're not putting restrictions on that money. The schools can spend it how they choose, and they don't hear a lot of flack from, from boosters about it. What it, Just sign players to a contract like you'd sign a coach. And you can negotiate with the player. The market will be clear as to what players are worth. And the player signs the contract or not. It's pretty simple. And you can sign a multi-year deal. And if you can put a buyout in a coach's contract, you can put a buyout in a player's contract. You can say if you get arrested, the contract's terminated. If you fall out of favor academically, it's terminated. Things like that. It's normal business that occurs every day in, in our society. It's not that hard. They just don't want to do it, and and they're going to have to. They're going to have no choice because they're going to lose the house case, and that's going to be billions of dollars in damages. Uh, this is where it's going, and I think I think the the smart people within the NCAA know that. They're just trying to make it seem like everything is teetering on the edge of disaster unless Congress passes a law that lets us do what we've always done, which is restrict athletes. And I just don't see that happening. Maybe it will, but I don't see that happening. And is the motivation here as simple as they haven't been paying these athletes for all these decades and they want to just keep not paying them and keep the money for themselves? Is, is there any more to it than that? I, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, I don't mean it to sound sinister, but even with these collectives and players making money in the NIL sphere, Schools are looking at this and administrators saying, wait a minute, that's our money. Like the, these, the people who support our programs would have given that money to us. Now they're giving half of it to us and they're giving half of it to the players. That's our money. And it's not their money. The players deserve to compete in the marketplace for the available dollars in this multi-billion dollar industry, just like anyone else. And, and the NCAA has always sold this to the public as this is a zero-sum game. Uh, a dollar that goes to an athlete is a dollar that's lost to the enterprise. They don't look at it as this is an ever-expanding pie because the, the, the pie keeps growing. 
And, and it, it's always fascinated me that as revenues continue to grow, university or athletic department expenses rise to the exact level of revenues. I mean, apparently inflation has been a pretty big problem in college sports only for decades. Um, none of it makes any sense and no reasonable economist agrees with the, the viewpoint of the NCAA. But what are you going to do? I mean, we've been listening to this nonsense. First, they said, uh, boy, you, you let NIL, everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket. College sports will cease to exist. And it's doing just fine. They said the same thing about stipends years ago. Oh, if we give players stipends, well, we're not going to be able to afford. We're going to be cutting sports, and it's it's going to everything's going to be ruined. Uh, the baseball said it about the reserve clause. The Olympics said it about amateurism. None of it's true. None of it's true. Multi billion dollar businesses don't fold up because they have to pay their employees. It just doesn't happen. And will there be changes? Sure. You know, we won't have athletic departments as big as the Pentagon anymore. And they won't, you know, they won't hire a million people to work in the athletic department when the money's more efficiently spent putting talent on the floor or on the field. We'll see differences there. But everything else, schools aren't going to cut sports. They're going to have the same number of sports. They're going to have the sports that that are important to them and uh, and important to their fan base. Uh, and that's going to continue. So we just had this whole situation with Zvonimir Isovich, who you know finally made his debut for Kentucky uh, after the NCAA took a long time deciding whether or not he was eligible. He's a seven-two Croatian, you know, basketball phenom. Anything we can take away from that whole saga, um, or is it just kind of more uh, more color to the same picture? Yeah, it's more of the same in my view that, uh, you know, the NCAA's view is you're guilty until proven innocent. So if we have a question, you have to prove yourself eligible before you're allowed to play because of the restitution rule. Because if you play a player that ultimately is determined to be ineligible, then we're going to erase all those games and you're going to give us all that money. Uh, so everybody's afraid to play a, to, to put a player on the floor or on the field until the NCAA blesses it. I think it should be the other way around. I mean, you know, we're not we're not manufacturing dangerous drugs here or or making, you know, making explosives. I mean, this is sports, college sports. Uh, Zvonimir Ivicic should have been eligible to play until it was proven otherwise. And and to me, that's a backwards way of doing it. But it's the way we've always done it. And uh, and is it surprising that the NCAA, the way they do business, cost a young man and his team half of a season? No. We've seen this before. It happens with transfers. It happens with all kinds of things. And uh, I think it's wrong. It always has been. But that's not going to change anytime soon. And you alluded to how things will change, you know, as you know, we move toward, you know, athletes probably being employees and certainly getting compensated in some way. How do you see that kind of reshaping the balance of power, you know, in these athletic programs? Are, are there, you know, the strongest ones going to get stronger? Will there, you know, just what do you see happening broadly within the, the college basketball landscape? I'm not sure when there's enough data to make any conclusions here, just since we've had the transfer portal and NIL. But what I see is talent being spread around more rather than being concentrated. So at least in basketball, and I believe in football, we're seeing teams that traditionally haven't been as strong, stronger, and we're seeing some of the programs that have been traditionally way stronger being a little bit weaker relative to the field. That's what a lot of fans have said they wanted. Um, I don't know whether they want it now that we have it, 
but I, I think largely, even though it's more difficult for coaches, you know, I certainly grant them that it's not easier now for coaches. It's, it's more difficult because they, they have to replenish their rosters year after year and they don't have the same kind of roster certainty that they did before. But we've come out with more more great stories than bad ones. And I point to a lot of the players that were under recruited out of high school. They were seen a certain way. They go to a smaller place and they kill it and they transfer to a bigger place and their household names as a result of it. Uh, Zvonimir Ivicic's teammate, Antonio Reeves, is, a, is a, uh, an example of that. He played at Illinois State, was under recruited out of high school. Now he's one of the best players in the country on one of the best teams and everybody knows his name. Uh, Max Asmus at Texas, who went to Oral Roberts, say there are all kinds of players like that. I think those are good things. And when you see coaches who start on a lower level and rise up, that's a great story. And everybody understands it. You see a player do it and they're like, wait a minute, where's the loyalty? They're running away from adversity as if everybody signs up for adversity when they want to play. Um, I think those are just excuses and rationalizations for a system, an antiquated system that's changing. Uh, and I think it's, I think when we start signing players to contracts, you'll see far less movement. You'll see a much more stable market. Uh, look, if I had my way and could uh, wave a magic wand as to how this business should work, I would take all the programs that want to compete on the highest level, just like they do in football, uh, because there's a you know football bowl subdivision and a fo- FCS, you know the championship subdivision. Uh, have that for every sport. And that way, the very best talent is going to want to play on that division. So you'll have more talent spread out over fewer units. And with roster limits on all these teams, there won't be as many places to transfer if all the players are signed to contracts, as I think they should be. And some players are going to make a lot of money. Some may sign for a scholarship only or less than a scholarship. Who knows? Depending on what, the, what their team values them at and what they're willing to accept. I think we'll be we'll see a very stable marketplace and you'll see far less movement than you see right now. And just before we let you go, uh, as as a fan and an observer of the game, uh, as we you know, we're well into the season and looking toward March Madness. What are you uh, most intrigued by, most looking forward to watching as the season progresses? I'm intrigued by a season that I can't recall uh, a, a comparison. Um, there are a lot of really good teams out there in college basketball. But there's no knockout punch teams that you say, wait a minute, they're, they're going to be in Phoenix for the Final Four. You say that they're a favorite or they have a chance, they have the best chance to be there. But uh, it seems like more teams are capable. It's way harder to win on the road this year. It seems that in past years, it's always been difficult, but it seems way more difficult this year. Uh, so I think we're going to have a, a, a more turbulent tournament. Uh, or at least we we could have that, and uh, and that that's always fun. You know, we, we don't know. We've never known what's going to happen, but uh, but there's never been a time where I felt less sure of a team winning in a given situation than this year, and uh, and that's exciting in a way. We've had years where you've had dominant teams that have a chance to be undefeated and all that stuff, and then you have years like this where where you're going, hey, the the top teams are vulnerable. They're really good and they're really consistent, but they're vulnerable. And that's the kind of year we have this year. All right. Should be fun. Jay Billis, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Subscribe to Front Office Sports Today and tell a friend or two about the show. Thank you for listening. We will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.